Hey everyone, it's Colin. I uh, just wanted to do a quick little announcement and thank you at the beginning of this episode. Um, we recently did a poll uh, asking you guys uh, about what kind of format that you would enjoy most, um, whether that was short form or long form, and uh, the response was overwhelmingly for a shorter form uh version of the podcast. Um, so what we're going to be doing from here on out is we're going to be structuring the episodes when we record them with bookends uh, so that they run about 45, maybe 50 minutes, uh, and then kind of conclude from there and be part one of a particular discussion. Um, now, I'm going to be splitting up this episode, our discussion on uh, fauna of the Avatar world, uh, into two sections, but it doesn't really uh, split as cleanly as I would have liked. Um, but just so you know, in the future, we are going to be doing that so that we can have these uh, shorter, more digestible episodes. Um, but thank you all so much again for participating in that poll and all of your continued support. We're really excited to kind of take the podcast in this new direction, and I hope you enjoy today's show. Thanks so much, guys. And welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I'm Colin, I'm the main host, and uh, tonight I've got Kristen with me. Hello! <laughs> so, we are so pumped about this episode. Um, I, we kind of talked about this like several weeks ago, and uh, kind of pitched this idea of discussing something in the show that really aligned with, uh, you know, personal interests. And as I'm sure you've heard on the show several times, uh, Kristen works extensively with animals and has a vast knowledge. And I was, and we were like, you know what would be awesome is an Avatar animal-focused episode. And that's what we're doing today. This is the Avatar The Last Airbender fauna episode. Woo! <laughs> Uh, so we're going to kind of change things up a little bit. Um, typically where I am kind of leading the charge in terms of moving us along for our point to point, uh, I am kind of handing the reins over to Kristen, uh, who is the Hi, residential expert in this. Um, and I am just going to kind of be reacting as if, uh, you guys typically would. And then, uh, we're just kind of, kind of dive deep into this amazing, rich world of animals that Mike and Brian have given us to, discuss so uh yeah without any further ado kristen take it away all right so since we're going to be discussing fauna uh i i definitely want to come at this from a very um wildlife based point of view and that includes categories and taxonomy um so while there was an art book that was released from the original series of avatar the last airbender that did kind of give a little bit of background into the animals and how there were competitions about coming up with unique creatures. Um, it, it, there isn't necessarily a biological point of view about the animals. Um, but if we take some of the principles of biology from our world and apply it, even with the fantasy setting, um, there's, there's a lot of things that we can unload on this topic about the animals. Um, but to condense them into some taxonomic groups, essentially, to kind of help us uh, guide this talk, um, I made up some categories for the animals. Um, so there are animals who are hybrid-like, there are animals that are true hybrids, and there are mythical creatures. Um, and in the series, we do see some animals that would fall within the realm of normal, like a cat, not oh, necessarily a... <laughs> Very true. Very true, Bosco the bear, like just just general animals that don't really seem to be a hybrid. Um, and Surely Bosco you mean a great example bear. of like the the <laughs> like that whole that that whole archetype is seen throughout the series, and then everybody is so confused by Bosco. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and and to be honest, with the normal animals might be one of the most interesting ones. Um, but we'll uh, we'll kind of touch on everybody and and build up. Uh, some definitions about the animals and what makes them unique or hybrid or not hybrid. Yeah, I was, I'm so pumped. Um, so 
Uh, you know, b- before we kind of go any further, can you, uh, in case folks are, this is like the first episode they're listening to or haven't listened to other ones that you've been in, can you just kind of briefly uh, like tell the listeners like what kind of work you've done in the animal world and everything? And uh, yeah. Uh, oh, my goodness. Um, well, I mean, like like most kids, like I always loved animals. I, I, I fantasized about the idea of working with animals. But when I was picking a college profession, I did not believe that I was going to be very good at science and math. And I took a different route. Um, fast forward 10, 12 years later, after I've dropped out and changed my major and feel like I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Um, my husband and I were li- living in Monterey Bay, California. And I started volunteering at the Monterey Bay Aquarium as an exhibit guide. And in order to become an exhibit guide, you go through this, uh, all these amazing courses and classes. Uh, They give you reading material. There's constant, continuous education. And my brain was just like this sponge. I just absorbed everything they said. I hung on every word they told me about animals, their ecological niches, wildlife conservation, just all these things. And I was, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I am going to, (laughs) I'm going to come back at this and I'm, I'm, I want to do wildlife conservation. And, um, that was back in 2015. Uh, so it hasn't even been for a very long time. Uh, but after that, I went and spent time at the Calvert Marie Museum. I professionally work as an educator at the National Aquarium, uh, but I also do volunteer work at the National Aquarium and the Maryland Zoo in Baltimore, uh, both as an, uh, I help take care of animals. I do conservation events to help protect wildlife. Uh, I even run a Facebook page that's about educating people about wildlife called the Nagging Naturalist. Like this is literally uh, my passion is, uh, is wildlife and how to protect wildlife. So that is my background. Very cool. Uh, and, it, you know, I know we've kind of mentioned this before, and I, I know we talked about it kind of in the very first episode about how, you know, just this diverse animal world was like uh, kind of an influence on you, too. And can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought it was really fascinating, you know, and, and helping to build this episode really kind of brought me back to that, too, was, um, you know, the very one of the very first animals we meet I mean, we do see a couple of animals prior to Appa, but for the most part, Appa is our first real introduction to, uh, like, he sets the bar for wildlife on it in in Avatar. And, you know, it's so incredible. Like, we see fantasy animals all the time, but sometimes it's just reinterpretations of original animals. Like, there's probably countless interpretations of dragons. Um, But some of the interpretations of animals in this series I found really fascinating and I really enjoyed the imagination of it. And I think people don't appreciate uh, how fascinating some animals are. Uh, and and this will be part of our discussion, too, from a, from a biologist standpoint. Uh, some of the features that the animals develop, uh, and this is what helps uh, divide up our hybrid-like and true hybrids, is, you know, it's one thing when you have mixed mammalian traits but when you have something that is mammalian and it takes on true reptilian or true fish-like features um that that's actually a pretty fantastic uh mixture um due to the constraints of real world biology you know that's where the actual fantasy kicks in and they're completely original creatures um and in some cases they actually kind of give them real niches like they don't exist just to exist in some cases some of these animals are even presented as if they exist and fulfill ecological niches which i can appreciate because that's really important to me is when i'm telling people to uh to to help protect and conserve wildlife one of the things we focus on is is reminding people that animals serve roles and purposes that uh they have important things to do that actually keep us healthy and so it's been really cool uh, watching the series unfold. And even as we continued into Korra, too, meeting new animals, it was amazing. And I was enthralled when I first watched the series, watching some of the animals. Yeah. And, and what's amazing, too, is that the idea of a hybrid animal is built into the original DNA of this show. The very first sketch that Mike and Brian did was on a napkin at a diner and it was ang a robot version of momo and then a polar bear dog 
So, like, that was so much of, like, what they wanted to do from the start was to kind of have these unique animals that were just a different mix and all of that. And it's just, it's so cool to know that, like, that was where it started. And it makes so much sense that it becomes such a huge part of this entire Avatar world. Man, I wonder what happened to that robot Momo. I I have a theory <laughs> that if one day, one day... That if Mike and Brian returned to animating Avatar, that they would do Avatar set in like a sci-fi future. Because so much of their initial like designs, if you look at like the art behind the animated series, a lot of like the early ideas were Aang wielding this kind of like like sci-fi mechanical staff <clears throat> and Momo being a robot. And there was so much that was like kind of more of this like sci-fi future. And oh. And it's like, I have a theory that if they do return one day, that like, that would be what they would do. Because like, we were building up to that with Korra too, Mm because Korra was starting to take on like that alternative history, like, uh, steampunkish feel. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) Ah. Yes. (laughs) All right. So let's, uh, let's dive into this. All right. So We've we've established our our categories, how we're going to taxonomically move shuffle these animals around, uh, and we're going to start with hybrid like uh, because this is probably one of the more common animals in the series. Um, so hybrid like are not true hybrids. Um, I would say that most of the animals, despite their name, don't show truly hybridized characteristics. It's just that they have features that remind us of other animals. And we do this a lot in nature where we name something one thing, but then we attach a descriptor of another animal to it. Um, so when we see these similar features, we come up with animals like uh, the leopard shark, which we see off the coast of California and along that West Coast area. It is not a leopard. It is a shark. <laughs> it just happens to have leopard-like features. The whale shark is a shark. And it is very large and apparently just being big got it named a whale. Um <laughs> So, you know, it's sometimes we just use these as descriptions. Um, sometimes we don't even label animals correctly. Sometimes we give an animal a name and neither name actually ma- matches what it is. Uh, my favorite example being the vampire squid, which is neither a vampire, nor is it a true squid, though. Boy! <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see the names we come up with for animals when we don't actually know what we're looking at. <laughs> How wild would it be if it really was a vampire squid, though? Like, if it just, like, went around and just sucked the blood out of, like, other, like, they it didn't, like, eat other fish or anything. It just, like, went around and sucked the blood out of every fish. <laughs> well, there are some really fascinating animals that consume blood. It's called uh, hematophagy. So, aside from vampire bats, there are actually other animals that do consume blood. Uh, whether it's as just a piece of their diet or the primary, uh, source of their food. But, uh, that's, uh, that's a whole nother can of worms (laughs) that I'm not going to open up if we want to keep this like down to like one and a half to two hours. (laughs) Well, my, my vampire desires have been sated knowing that, that that those creatures live in the world. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's amazing. Um, but, uh, taking, taking from, our experience in the real world of how we uh, label animals and looking at some of the features of the animals in Avatar, um, we we can see some of this trend where some of these animals aren't necessarily true hybrids. Um, They just simply share uh, features of other animals. Um, Now, I'm not going to say that they aren't true hybrids in some sense, because again, like I said in the beginning, there is no established biology. There's nothing that really told us where the hybrids came from. Were they natural? Was there a, a magical happening that created them? Um, we, you know, it, it's hard to know without Mike and Brian coming in and saying, this is canon, you know, this is what mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're just going to, you know, make some assumptions, uh, based on what limited evidence we have <laughs> and mike and brian if you want to come on the show and uh and inform us and debate we we would love to have you yes <laughs> yes please <laughs> uh, so let's look at some um animals that people who who saw the first series would be pretty familiar with you know we're not going to get super duper eclectic with some of the animals uh some of them are are 
pretty, pretty standard. Uh, one of the very first animals we meet aside from, uh, uh, some of the side animals aside from up in them is the Komodo rhinos. Mm, um, mm -hmm. Those guys make quite a few appearances. They're a pretty standard mount uh, in the series for the Fire Nation. Uh, and based on the name, uh, Komodo is technically the name of an island. So uh, I'm assuming Komodo doesn't exist in the series. So it's not a rhino from the island of Komodo. It's based on the name. You would assume it is a Komodo dragon and rhino hybrid. Mm. Um, but to me, it is would technically be based on its features, a tri-horned Komodo dragon-like lizard um, that just happens to sh share some of the bulky size of a rhino and have that nice little stabby face. <laughs> um, and, and, and when we look at the features, we can see that, you know, it, it has those, it has that really high arch uh, uh, shoulders and it has a very similar torso to a rhino. Um, but there are many animals that share this and, and, when we look at animals that share features that aren't related to each other, this is something we call convergent evolution. Mm. And so convergent evolution is anytime an animal evolves similar features to another animal, even though they're unrelated. Mm. One of my favorite examples is the lesser Madagascar tenric, which looks like a hedgehog. Ooh. And it's called the lesser hedgehog tenric sometimes. <laughs> uh, but they are not actually related to each other. Aside from being mammals, uh, they actually split away from each other after you classify them further. Um, I kind of feel for those guys, though. They're just constantly referred to as lesser compared to its uh, to its brethren. <laughs> there, there's Unfortunately, there's a lot of animals that are called lesser. Uh, usually <laughs> it means something like smaller or less impressive. And in, in their defense, it... it doesn't actually mean anything <laughs> they're still valuable yes <laughs> but if anybody googles the lesser madagascar hedgehog tenric um and looks at it they're gonna go oh my god that looks like a hedgehog but it is not an actual hedgehog so those two animals are examples of convergent evolution they're not related to each other so this wasn't like you know their family had this feature and they just split and branched off and they're more diverse examples of the same animal they are not that closely related to each other, and yet they develop the same thing. Same with birds and bats. They both developed wings, um, mm. even though a bat obviously isn't a bird and a bird is not a mammal. So um, these are examples of convergent evolution. And so this is where my argument for the hybrid-like animals come from, is they have developed features based on their evolution to look similar to other animals, and they are named to describe them based on other animals, but they are not truly like that. So in my mind, uh, the Komodo rhino is just a very large bulky lizard that has developed horns. Mm. Um, you know, obviously people can disagree with me on that. They can call it a hybrid <laughs> if they want to, but there is nothing that we can visibly see about that animal that suggests that it is mammalian in any way. Mm. Everything about it is reptilian. Yeah, and I mean, you know, shape. And I mean, the, there's the point too that like where these, uh, where the Komodo dragon kind of, uh, or the Komodo rhino kind of originates from is clearly some, it's a product of the Fire Nation because they must have a lot of them because that is their, like you said, their primary mount. And uh, I mean, Komodo dragons typically live in coastal areas, right? Yeah, they live on an island, so they're yeah. pretty much all coasts. <laughs> So, I mean, it makes sense that that would be, you know, the case, but like a rhino is kind of more of a plains animal that needs like, you know, grass and like open plains and everything, I would assume. So it, it like there's not really much of that to go around in the Fire Nation. Yeah, if we're, if we're looking at the archetypal rhinos, the black, white rhinos and the white rhinos, they are very much open plains animals. Uh, there are a few rhinos that live on islands, but fascinatingly enough, those rhinos are actually very hairy. Um, yeah, so the Sumatran and Javan ry rhinos are, uh, are very hairy rhinos. They do not look <laughs> a lot like their cousins. Um, so there's, there's technically five types of rhinos, white, black, uh, the Indian, uh, Javan and Sumatran. Um, and let me tell you what, if they, if, if, if Mike and Brian want to look at a really cool animal for some ideas on how to design something that looks badass, um, the Indian rhino looks incredible google it when you get a chance wow um, but yeah well, i just so looked up the Sum the sumatran rhino and it kind of it almost looks more like a hippopotamus than anything they're so weird <laughs> they're 
Right. I mean, they're such bizarre animals. And, and look up, uh, is, is the Javan like the really hairy one, I think? I'm not sure. Maybe, but Oh, know. the Indian rhinos. That is also crazy. It's got like armored plates. Like it just, or at least it see it looks yes. like it has armored plates in different sections on it. That's crazy. Oh my god! Yes, I got, I had the opportunity to see one at the Bronx Zoo uh, a year or two back, and I just my jaw dropped to the floor when I first saw it. I never imagined a rhino looking. I mean, not to say that the white and black rhinos of Africa don't look cool, but if I had to pick the coolest looking rhino, it would be the Indian rhino. <laughs> It literally looks like an animal built out of armor. I mean, just it, it floors me. Um, so, yeah. So going back to your original point that we strayed from, uh, if we do look at uh, this, the, the standard vanilla rhino, uh, it, it, you're right. It is a very open plains animal. Um, and who knows? You know, uh, sometimes when we take animals from the wild and we breed them and domesticate them, uh, sometimes we'll focus on a feature and we'll breed them until that feature feature becomes more pronounced. Uh, mm. So maybe they they weren't originally called Komodo rhinos. Maybe they bred them bigger and bulkier. And very often when we breed animals and we start to see certain features arise, uh, we'll give different breed types nicknames. I mean, we see it in dogs. Mm. We can see it in fish. We can see it in birds where we breed favorite colors and features into animals. Um Maybe the animal that the Komodo rhino originally came from isn't even this big and bulky. Maybe it's much smaller and more slender, but that wouldn't be very good for war, would it? Hmm. Very cool. So, yeah. And, and, and another really cool example is the ostrich horse. Yes. Um, which, again, <laughs> based on the name, sounds like it would be a hybrid. I mean, that is those are two really different animals. Um but when when you take a look at the animal without a saddle and the rider, I mean, it's 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 a bird. It's definitely yeah. a bird. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have hooves. It doesn't have like a horse like face. Like the only semblance of horse about it is just the fact that you can ride it. I mean, I'm not entirely sure where the horse part comes from, aside from the part that it can be ridden. Well, maybe um, then, because I, I was thinking about it, maybe like in kind of like the neck, like from the shoulders up to the neck, because I mean, an ostrich has a very like thin neck and everything, but the ostrich horse seems to have kind of like, like a thicker neck. Yeah, it's a little and, stockier. Yeah, a little stockier. And that's possible too. And the thing is, is uh, the term ostrich horse, if we're using horse primarily to describe it though, this still implies the existence of a horse, which we don't actually see anywhere in the series. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I found really fascinating because I'm sitting here like, how does everybody know what a horse is or what a horse does? <laughs> uh, well, do you think that that's another example of just them kind of using like common nomenclature, like the idea with like the Komodo rhino, even though there's not an island named komodo there in the avatar world that we know of it's just more of like something that's familiar and and i do imagine to a certain degree it probably is for fans especially mm. um but i i par another part of my surprise at the lack of the horse though was simply because of how uh how centric asiatic culture is and how it influences the series and considering that horses played a huge historic and cultural role in uh a variety of Asian cultures, mm. uh, it's kind of surprising that they actually wouldn't make an appearance considering some of the very um, um, vanilla creatures we see, like dragons and stuff, you know. It's like Genghis Khan conquered over half of the largest continent on our planet and parts of Europe. And p historians and anthropologists and people argue that this is due to his cavalry. So it's, if, if, this was such a big part of the culture. I do wonder why we didn't actually see some horses in the series. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, it's this idea of, uh, I mean, with dragons, I feel like that that is very much like, and especially with the way that they design the dragons, because you can kind of break down dragons into like their different influences and like what they like, how they're interpreted by different cultures and the dragons in Avatar The Last Airbender are, by and large, in directly influenced from, uh, like, like East Asian and general Asian cultures, whereas it's not like a, like a smog or like a typical, like, Western type of dragon that we would see in stories like that. But I feel like the horse, even though it was used in, like, that, like, Genghis Khan was able to use the horse, 
I feel like the horse is so much of this, like, it's also just a symbol that is shared across the entire world, too. And especially, like, in Western civilization, how much we romanticize the horse in, like, Western culture as well. Well, what's interesting is uh, the Western culture didn't have horses. <laughs> yeah, no, horses absolutely. I mean, from, it's like all these other places. In mm-hmm. fact, um, you know, horses did once exist in North America, but they were actually extinct for thousands of years before the Europeans reintroduced them. There is no such thing as a native horse in North America. Hmm. Um, So, I mean, the horse definitely has become a really huge part of just human culture in in general. Yeah. Um, But there, there is a very special place for horses in Asia and in the Middle East and places where they, where they originated. And I just, I, I don't know. I just, a part of me when I, when I really sat down and thought about it was like, you know, I'm really surprised that like some kind of horse hybrid did not make its way into the series. Um, especially cause I mean, maybe horses just aren't, like you said, you know, it's just, they're just so common. Maybe they're just not fantastic enough. You know, maybe it was more fun <laughs> to have other animals. Um, yeah, but who knows you know. that it's one of those questions that Mike and Brian will have to answer for us. <laughs> When but, they come onto the podcast and talk yes, to us, <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, I, I like I. What I love about the two animals that you chose here too is like these are kind of like both highly domesticated and used for like primary modes of either travel or for war. Um, especially the ostrich horse is much more for travel because we see um, Zuko in like the first half of book two just traveling so far off that ostrich horse that he stole from song the sweet earth bending girl who showed him kindness i know <laughs> well and, and and that is primarily where we see the ostrich tor- horse too is in more agrarian situations like we see them with farmers and we see them in villages and we don't really see them very often as war mounts um they're certainly not as intimidating as the komodo rhino um <laughs> And, and it does seem like like the horse, it's used as both a, a mount for general travel for as a as a labor animal, a beast of burden, and potentially also as a, a vehicle for war. But it does not seem like they're as valued as those um, the Komodo rhinos. rhinos are, at least from the mm-hmm. at least from the Fire Nation. To be fair, we did see ostrich horses with uh, uh, Earth Nation uh, or Earth Kingdom soldiers when they kidnapped uh, Uncle Iroh. Yes. Yep. Maybe just cultural flavor. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, so what's next? Well, so that's that's the hybrid-like animals. And like I said, my big my big push with those is that they are animals that simply exhi- exhibit convergent evolution in this war and not true hybridism. For me, determining hybrid and hybrid-like is looking at the traits and where they are within a taxonomic class. Mm. Um, so when we talk about classes or clades within taxonomy, um, we, we group them into pretty broad groups. So most people will recognize some of these groups. There's mammals, there's reptiles, amphibians, birds. Uh, your bony fish is your typical like reef fish. Uh, cartilaginous fish would be sharks, rays, and uh, ratfishes. There's insects, arachnids, cephalopods, jellyfish, and so on. So those are taxonomic classes. Hmm. Okay, um, cool. Now these animals are pretty far removed from each other. Um, in fact, very often when we talk about hybridizing animals in the real world, you can it's really rare, if not impossible, to go outside of an animal's genus. When we look at a scientific name for an animal, you're looking at the species and genus name side by side. If you go outside of those two levels and go up further back, it's basically impossible for animals to mix with each other. So mm-hmm. to mix on a class level, which is several levels away from... Um, the genus that is truly something that has to belong to fantasy because from a biological standpoint in our world, it is impossible for these animals to actually mix this way. Mm. So when we, what we looked at previously was, you know, uh, a reptile with strictly reptilian traits, um, not really any mammal traits. And if we look at other mammals with mammalian features, uh, we briefly see koala otters in the, they're so cute. (laughs) They are stupid adorable. Those were really two cute animals to mix together. <laughs> but um, they're both mammalian. And, who, and, and I could make the argument that they were simply koalas that found that they got more resources from the ocean and eventually slowly evolved, just like whales. I mean, whales were originally land animals. They did not start in the ocean. All mammals came from land. Any mammals that exist 
in aquatic situations have evolved from land back into water. So I could argue that these koala otters simply adapted to aquatic life. And since otters benefit from that body type in the water, there's no reason why the koala could not also benefit from that body type. Yeah, the koala was just like, screw the trees, I'm going to the seas. <laughs> basically, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, the eucalyptus tree basically is is really not healthy to eat. There's a reason why <laughs> these guys live in the slow lane, mostly sleeping, mostly eating, like their diet is so bad. It's like pandas. Like these animals have such poor diets it's like why would you evolve like that it's like humans evolving to only eat potato chips it's a terrible (laughs) idea god that would be so disturbing (laughs) i know and that's oh god what was that what was that movie uh wally makes me think of wally Uh, where the humans are just like useless yeah um you know a lot of animals have, have done that though like when when they struggle to find a niche like if somebody's not eating something if something is toxic and poisonous to other animals somebody is gonna figure out how to eat it because nobody else is eating it and they don't want to compete with anybody else Mm. and so you know koalas did that um (laughs) now if we took a koala and we gave it another cute animal like a cuttlefish's features cuttlefish are uh small squid-like cephalopods um little arms and tentacles, then that would be a truly hybridized animal because we took from the mammalian class and we took from the cephalopod class, which are really distantly related. Um, (laughs) So if that had been an animal we saw, I would definitely argue that that is a true hybrid. Hmm. So Um, uh, you you did write in the notes here there, you said that there is a difference between arms and tentacles. (laughs) I am... I'm very curious. What can you explain to me? Because I had no idea that like a cephalopod could have arms and tentacles. <laughs> so it depends on what kind of cephalopod you are. We're going to look at the four major types. Uh, with the Nautilus, the cephalopods that still have shells, they only have tentacles. Mm. Um, and their tentacles are a little bit weird, so I'm not going to delve into that because that's another can of worms. <laughs> Octopuses, the ones we're most familiar with, only have arms. Their mm. arms are covered completely in suckers. But when you look at the squid and the cuttlefish, the other two groups of cephalopods, they have they have the eight arms that an octopus do, but then they have two additional arms that are actually tentacles. They only have suckers on the very tips, and they are strictly used to help them feed. So uh, when you watch like documentaries of squid feeding, and you watch their arms splay out, and then these two other uh, tentacles strike out and grab something, those tentacles are strictly for grabbing and grappling food. Uh, and getting it into their mouths. So that is yeah. so cool. I'm learning so much. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it, it's something that comes up at the aquarium a lot. Everybody's like, "Oh, look at the octopus and its tentacles!" And like the nagging, like naturalist in my ear is like, "Oh, those those aren't tentacles. They You're have wrong. Tentacles. <laughs> uh, like it's it's really hard because you want to make it. A learning moment but at the same time you don't want to like nitpick people to death because they'll shut you out and then it becomes a pointless conversation so it's one of those things where you have to kind of like find a friendly way of going actually did you know that octopuses have no tentacles and the person looks at the animal and they're like what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it helps open up this little door into conversation about these uh these anatomical differences um but yeah so uh even just just taking body parts like that, you know, uh, very simple body parts uh, like arms or specifically tentacles, and applying them to animals outside of the cephalopods uh, are w- would would help create hybridized animals. And so that's where we get into the true hybrids now. And of course, I, and I'm sure plenty of people agree with me based on all the memes. But my favorite true hybrid in the series is the turtle duck. Yes. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> so the two classes we see in this instance is a bird and a reptile. Um, and and what's really interesting about it is the part that you can't really see. Uh, so birds and reptiles have a, actually a very recently split ancestry um, based on what we know about dinosaurs and how uh Dinosaurs evolved into different groups, and potentially birds are one of the inheritors of the uh, dinosaur legacy, essentially. Mm. So when you look at those little mallards resting on the lake, know that those are living dinosaurs. Yes. 
dinosaurs <laughs> everywhere. I just hear the Jurassic Park theme song just playing anytime I look out and see a bunch of bunch of ducks. That's such a beautiful way to see on the your world. Bird feeder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so that's actually a pretty fascinating mixture because of all the groups. Those would be two really cool groups to mix because while they are obviously separated by a lot, they have very different features. Um, at the same time, they have such recent ancestry that it's kind of fascinating to imagine how you would be able to blend this. Um, so this is where a lot of the questions start to arise in my mind of how you um, – how do you – blend these animals mm. so just like a biological sense exactly mm. so so you can you can start to look at some of the traits so uh just thinking about general duck and turtle traits uh it's reasonable to assume that they would still lay eggs since both animals lay eggs they lay very different eggs but they both still <laughs> lay eggs um neither one of them have true teeth they don't have teeth for chewing uh turtles have very beak-like mouths and ducks have their little bills um mm. and uh and 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 they use beta keratin which is a really common uh uh compound that we see throughout nature i mean we have keratin everywhere in our fingernails our hair uh for birds and reptiles it's going to be in the feathers it's going to be the bills the claws the scales um it's it's something that both of these animals share in large quantities uh so it's not unreasonable that these things would would be able to coexist pretty easily hmm. we did get a very brief glimpse of their behavior um in the series uh when the mother came to protect her uh, duckling from uh, zuko's abuse um that parental <laughs> so behavior mean. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but i mean it was really azula who like you know even though it was zuko who threw it it was truly Azula's manipulation that, that well that. it was Zuko's learning moment yes besides she was probably more upset that he threw bread at her because you know what bread is really bad for ducks yes I just saw you posted <laughs> about that too so that's our that is the legend of portal cast uh true learning moment if you can take anything away from this don't feed bread to ducks <laughs> yes um for a variety of reasons they don't eat bread naturally uh it's actually not nutritious healthy for them uh and it can actually encourage the spread of disease when you have all those animals come together and they get sickly um mm. in in my world the best thing to do is not feed wildlife at all but if you absolutely feel the need to feed something to an animal and i still discourage it uh lettuce and grapes lettuce and grapes are a duck's best friend if you're going to give it to them mm. uh, please do not feed them meat uh, we do not want to turn them into dinosaurs again no, that would be bad. See, that's the part where we can look at ducks and sing the Jurassic Park theme song and we can like <laughs> we can stay in that part of the movie instead of, you know, going to the latter half of the movie where they are coming and trying to eat us. <laughs> yeah, you would absolutely turn a duck into a velociraptor if it got a taste for meat. Oh god, that's so um. terrifying to think about. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, but um but yeah, so in reptiles, um, while there are some rare instances of reptiles having parental behaviors, crocodilians are a really great example, even though of the four major groups between the snakes, li lizards, uh, turtles, and crocodilians, we probably consider the crocodilians like the least likely to be good parents. They are actually the best parents of any reptilian. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, crocodilians take great care of their young. Uh, in, in most reptiles... Uh, as soon as the parents lay the eggs and bury them if they need to, they're done. That's as far as their parental um, assistance is given. Uh, there are some rare exceptions, but I do believe in all crocodilian species, uh, females stay near their nests, and when their young hatch, they will actually be around to help protect them, and in some cases, they'll even... Uh, gently ha place the young in their mouths and take them to the river. Oh, uh, I've seen pictures of that before. It's the most it's adorable thing in the world. <laughs> so it's so cool that that probably the scariest reptiles that we think of are probably the gentlest. Um, it's it's such a fascinating thing what Mother Nature's done. Um, but we see this, and since most turtles do not have uh, true parental uh, inclinations, I would definitely assume that that was a duck. Uh, mm. behavior mm. um and since uh the 
uh, parental behavior is very duck-like, I'm going to assume that it also lays nests. And if it lays nests and incubates, then it's going to have the duck's hard shell egg instead of the turtle's soft shell. Because turtles uh, dig holes and bury their uh, eggs in the ground. Uh, I imagine those turtle ducklings would struggle to breathe if they came out in the <laughs> sand from their eggs. Yeah. So I'm going to assume that the majority of the uh, uh, reproductive and parental care happens in a duck-like fashion. Mm. With that being said, uh, they, they were certainly very active animals too. And that is very suggestive of endothermic or warm-blooded animals and having a higher metabolism um, because reptiles, of course, are the opposite. They're ectothermic or cold-blooded. They rely on the temperature of the, uh, the air or water around them to keep them warm or cool versus you know those of us who are endothermic. Uh, we just have a higher metabolism and we burn energy to fuel ourselves. Uh, reptiles actually have very slow metabolisms um, and while there can be exceptions, there can be reptiles who are more active with higher metabolisms. Uh, it's more common for them to have slower metabolisms and to spend large periods of time being very inactive, hmm. uh, which does not look to be the case. Uh, these were some pretty uh, typical ducks as far as we can tell. Yeah, I mean, reptiles for all I've seen, have just they're usually just chilling. Like they don't really they're not on the move too much. And when they are on the move, it's like kind of like slinking, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what they're doing mostly is uh, a lot of those periods of inactivity is typically spent in the sun basking. Um, so again, you know, in order to be able to move in order to move around, to look for food, to find mates or to have the energy to avoid predators, uh, they have to essentially save up and store energy as much as possible. And so they will bask or lay out in the sun to warm up their bodies so that they have the energy they need to survive. Hmm. And so like in humans are kind of the opposite because we're just like, I want to go lay out in the sun and do nothing. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, like, I don't know, you exactly do, you do feel, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Cause sometimes when I'm like laughter, yeah. Cause after I lay in the sun for a while, I'm just like, I don't want to do anything. I'm just like, I want to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Channeling our inner reptile. Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. So Uh, I I know you kind of like mentioned in the notes here, like a little bit about the shell, because I think that that's obviously like one of the the more interesting parts and the biggest signifier of it being more turtle-like that we get to see. Absolutely. Um, So what's really fascinating about a turtle shell is where it comes from. And there's some really big questions here about how this duck's anatomy is. Uh, So when you look at the human body and you look at our spine and how it connects to our rib cage, if you took the ribs and uncurled them and almost flattened them out and then pushed them outside of our bodies with our spine, that is what the turtle shell is. When you look at a turtle shell, you are looking at its spine and ribs and the plastron on the bottom is very similar to our sternum. Whoa, that's crazy. I did not know that. (laughs) It is crazy because when we talk about like invertebrates, like insects, we say that they have exoskeletons, their skeletons on the outside. And we vertebrates have our skeletons on the inside and turtles are this really weird middle ground where they technically have a part of their skeleton on the outside. It is covered in protective scales called scoots. Um, <laughs> They're called scoots? Still, yeah, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I joke all the time because with snakes, the scoots are the broad scales on the bottom. And so we joke all the time. It's like, these are what help the snake scoot around. <laughs> That's not why it's actually called that, but it's nice to imagine. Nice. <laughs> uh, but, um... But yeah, so turtles are this really strange animal when you actually look at how you make a turtle. (laughs) Um, But uh, turtles require sunlight as part of their care. If if turtles' uh, shells are not exposed properly to sunlight uh, through basking or, you know, other forms of getting UV, uh, it can actually damage the shell. It can curl inappropriately. It can cause a very withered unhealthy shell. Um, so I imagine that they would need to maintain the shell the same way a turtle would. Um, now obviously they're diurnal animals, ducks, uh, being up during the daytime. So obviously they're, they're spending lots of time out in the sun. So the shell is probably fine for the most part. They probably, uh, are also sharing a lot of other features with the turtles too, because, uh, I'm going to imagine 
since uh, these guys didn't show too many other turtle traits that they're probably closely uh, resembling terrapins. Mm. Um, so when we look at the group of turtles, Chelonians, um, there are three terms that we use to kind of break them up. Um, most people hear the difference between turtle and tortoise, uh, but uh, you could potentially throw in a third term in there, and that's terrapins. Mm. So your tortoise is your general land animal uh, with very stumpy legs and a high dome shell. Your sea turtle has uh, true flippers on its front and back legs uh, and a very flat shell that's meant to help them glide and cut through the water. But then you have terrapins who kind of sit in the middle. Now, terrapins are still mostly aquatic. We say semi-aquatic, but they, they, they spend a really good deal of time uh, in the water, uh, with the exception of when they come on to, like, logs to bask. And they even, uh, they even bury their eggs, very similar to how sea turtles do. But they do not have true flippers. Instead, they have very flat uh, paws with uh, webbing between them and tiny little claws. Um, now... Technically, the true terrapin is the diamondback terrapin. Uh, terrapin is actually a, a Native American term to describe the diamondback terrapins, which were considered an edible brackish uh, turtle species. Hmm. Um, but we've come to use terrapin to describe a lot of other semi-aquatic turtles like red-eared sliders and other turtles like that. Um, so based on what we're looking at, you know, uh, it has all the features of your typical dabbling duck like a mallard. Um, and a terrapin. So, oh, there's the cat. <laughs> no, like, well, we know that you're talking about animals in this episode. Our presence must be known. <laughs> uh, uh, man, I'm not even sure I added a cat to the notes either. I should have added a cat species. <laughs> um, but since uh, we're looking at a dabbling duck uh, terrapin hybrid potentially uh, both sets of animals are typically omnivorous so they would be having um, you know insects uh, marine vegetation and things like that as part of their diet and so those are some things that we can determine just based on looking at them are the parental behaviors uh, them probably having higher metabolism being endothermic having an omnivorous diet uh, so here's where some of the questions come in about how you, how this kind of animal might exist, this true hybrid. Um, so I told you about where the uh, shell comes from on a turtle. Would that be the same case for a duck? And if so, how would that change the duck's buoyancy? Because ducks don't have the same makeup as terrapins do. So the duck might have to compensate bodily in other ways for having this partial exoskeleton because all birds, with few exceptions, have hollow bones. Hmm. There are a few birds that do not have hollow bones, or at least their bones are more dense. Um, but because most dabbling ducks do migrate, they do have to have those lighter hollow bones to fly. So do they have this partial exoskeleton the way that the turtles do? And if so... You know, how is that impacted by their very different bone structure? Is their shell weaker? Do they have to have a denser one? Can they not migrate because of it? You know, there's a lot of questions surrounding some of these things. Well, I, I feel like that it, we could, I feel like we would err on the side of, I, I don't know if like weaker is the term, but I mean, like they, these are animals that are, that are in the fire nation gardens and it's kind of like, you know, we're, these are very like serene places that are, you know, just, uh, you know, of course places of excess. And I don't know when you kind of have those types of places in the world, it typically comes with kind of more exotic or, um, animals that, you know, need more care or can't really fend for themselves nearly as much. I mean, is that a fair assumption? It can be because we've certainly, um, we have domesticated species of ducks. Uh, one of my favorites being the Indian runner duck. Um, there are, there are certainly, uh, a lot of animals that given enough time, a couple of centuries with selective breeding, uh, we absolutely could presume, um, a lot about their features based on both, uh, what they might need to survive, but also the fact that they might have kind of come into this life of not really needing to fend for themselves anymore. They're living in a relatively, I, I would assume with the exception of probably like house cats, relatively predator free, you know, area. 
uh, they're being taken care of probably, or at the very least, they've got a very pristine environment to live in. So some of their their features and tra- traits definitely could have changed based on uh, this lifestyle, because we see it all the time. Um, there, I mean, most people don't think about it, but there are numerous species of domesticated ducks around the world. Um, I'm not sure if it's as numerous as chickens, but I would probably put it pretty high up there. Mm. Um, because while in Western culture, we may not put a huge emphasis on ducks as far as, uh, for food or as a typical farm animal, there are plenty of cultures that do. And, uh, ducks are actually seen as very beneficial in Asian cultures. Um, the Indian runner ducks, for example, and other ducks like them out in uh, Asia, some of those are used to actually help, uh, uh, protect farms, especially, uh, I think there was like one of those, uh, I forget what that cool documentary series is, is that brief one on, uh, Facebook, but, uh, it actually talked about the Indian runner ducks going into, um, uh, grapevine fields for wineries and helping them pick all the pests off. And so they actually keep, you know, hundreds of these birds, hundreds of these Indian runner ducks to go throughout the acres and acres of, uh, of, of grapevines and picking all the pests, especially these snails that can be damaging to it right off the vine hmm. to, you know, basically work their beasts of burden. Essentially they have a very specific job and they're actually not used as food. They're a very lean duck. They sit very upright compared to other ducks. Um, and it gives them a really weird posture. Uh, but they are used as this beneficial pest control, essentially. Um, and, and we bred them to be that way. Hmm. Very cool. Thank you all so much for listening to the latest episode of The Legend of Portalcast. Uh, just to let you know, uh, sorry for the delay that it came out on a Tuesday, but we are going to be releasing uh, part two of this episode uh, coming out on Monday of next week. So that'll be uh, six days on April 22nd. Um, And again, for the new format that we're going to be doing moving forward, uh, instead of releasing every two weeks, we're going to be releasing the shorter segmented episodes every week. Um, So we're really excited to start turning this out. Again, thank you all so much for the support and the feedback. And uh, if you have any other questions or want to give us any additional feedback, remember you can always reach out to us at The Legend of Portalcast on Instagram and Facebook and Portalcast Pod on Twitter. Then, of course, you can visit our website on thelegendofportalcast.com. That's legendofportalcast.com. And then you can email us at legendofportalcast at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes and on Spotify. Uh, So be sure to check us out there. Uh, Leave a review and a rating. It really helps out. And uh, in the meantime, thank you all so much again for listening. But for now, let us leave.